Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, one of the hosts of the channel. And today I'm very pleased to say we have Alec Ryrie on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, Protestants, The Faith That Made the Modern World. And I was just telling Alec in the pre-interview that I was... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, one of the hosts of the channel. And today I'm very pleased to say we have Alec Ryrie on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, Protestants, The Faith That Made the Modern World. And I was just telling Alec in the pre-interview that I was raised a Lutheran, and I still have some affection for Lutheranism. So I'm always very glad to to read a book about the the Reformation and about Protestantism. I I was also telling Alec, uh, to repeat myself, that I'm, I'm, Protestantism always confuses me a little bit, even though I guess I'm a Protestant. I, I don't. It's a, it's a strange thing, Protestantism, and and we will we will come to that in the course of the interview. But let me also say that the book is wonderfully written. It is a model for. Alec, can I say it's popular history? Is that okay? Yeah, no, that's okay. okay good, yeah, because it's, it's popular. It's, people it's, like it. It, exactly. So it's so readable and so witty and so funny. And I swear to God, people say this a lot, but I honestly laughed out loud at many points in the book. <laughs> Because Alec is a very witty guy, and he sees the irony in all kinds of situations. And believe me, the Protestant, uh, the Protestant movement, and Protestants in general—that's irony. There's rich, rich, uh, rich territory for an ironist. So, Alec, let me first say thanks very much for writing the book. Great pleasure. Thank you. Sure. So, can you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a professor. Of, my title is professor of the history of Christianity. Um, at Durham University in the northeast of England. Um, I studied uh, both history and theology at a series of English and Scottish universities. Um, I also lived a chunk of my childhood in in Washington, D.C., so I've I've spent quite a lot of time on, on this side of the water as well. You are also a cleric, is that correct? I'm not a cleric. I'm, a, I'm a licensed lay preacher in the Church of England. Yeah, see, that's just, uh, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> yeah, not do I, really. Um, it, I'm, I'm a kind of part-time assistant uh, okay, at, I see. at our village church. Is that like a presbyter or something? Never mind. I don't even want to go there. <laughs> uh, sort of. <laughs> okay. All right, I don't even want to go there, yeah. So um, why did you write this book? I've been writing about the the Reformation era for you know twenty odd years now. That's that's what my my specialism. Um, but it's always seemed to me since I first began graduate school that there was a longer set of stories to be told here. I'm back when I was a when I was a graduate student in the early nineties. I was studying the Reformation. But this was the time that South Africa was going through its democratic transition. And that's a part of the world that means a lot to me. I've got um, connections there. I was following it really closely. And I was really struck by the the way that the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa, which had been deeply implicated in setting up apartheid, um, was also being 
really crucial to, well, repenting of its role in that, um, in, in, in what it had done, had done, and in bringing apartheid to an end. And looking at that, it seemed to me then that it was another part of the same story that I was studying in the 16th century. Um, and so since then, I've had buzzing around the back of my mind this notion that it might make sense to think about the story of Protestantism over the long term, over the, the, the 500 years. And then with the anniversary coming up, I thought, OK, now this is the time to do this. Sure. And there's a story here that I think can be told. Um, and the reason I got into writing history in the first place is because I like telling stories. And so I thought, let's give it a go. Right. Well, you're good at it. And, and I can only imagine that in prospect, this must have looked like almost impossible task because there are so many separate stories that are involved because there are so many different, I don't even know if you should call them Protestant sects. I'm not, I'm sure what they are, but because they have a lot of people in them. (laughs) So they're not exactly (laughs) sex. Uh, So, but, but really there are a lot of different uh, branches in the Protestant tree. If there is a Protestant tree, but let's start at the very beginning with um, uh, one of my favorite historical figures, uh, Martin Luther. Um, I'm tempted to say, having read your book and some other things about Luther, that there wouldn't have really been a Reformation without Luther. Is that right? Maybe there would have been something, but whatever would have happened if it wasn't for him would have been very, very different. Yeah, from, I mean, you know, we're used to not like the whole kind of great man theory of history, and obviously there are problems with that. But the guy is so central. Yeah, to, he, he, to this drama. That, as it unfolds, I, I don't think you can imagine anything like the Reformation that happened or Protestantism as it's unfolded down to the present if you didn't have Luther at the center of it. Yeah, he was, a, to, to use a kind of buzzword, he was a kind of charismatic figure. But I always think of him sort of almost outsized. He's not, he's not like the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, he, he is an extraordinarily compelling figure. I mean, one of the things that, that, that makes him come to life so much is that his writing is still incredibly vivid and accessible. And you pick up a piece of Luther's writing, even if if you don't know who it's by, you can you, you read a few lines and you think this kind of sounds like Luther. He's a very distinct voice. There's there's something enormously direct and earthy about him. I mean, he can be really crude. Um, his, his language gets really vulgar at times. Um, but there's a you know he he throws himself into this stuff. There's a, a heartfelt nature to the to the way he writes which to me gives even his faults something kind of outsized about them um you know when when he goes wrong and he really does go spectacularly wrong in places i imagine we might be talking about anti-semitism at some point Mm -hmm. um even then there's there's a, a a kind of outsized grandeur to, to, to what he's doing. When he goes wrong, he goes wrong spectacularly. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the thing which, you know, in the end, I, I, I find makes him such an appealing figure. I can't think of any other major Protestant theologian who I would rather have a beer with. Yeah, no, I agree um, with that. And, you know, he was a man who liked his beer. You probably have some. Uh, mm-hmm. The thing which I find so appealing about him as a, as a thinker um, is his love for paradox. You know, he's he's not a systematician. He's not kind of laying out uh, a, a, a detailed, consistent philosophical system. What he's trying to do is wrestle with 
this kind of life upending insight that he has had, which is that he is an absolute sinner. He is totally depraved, as he would put it. Sin pervades every part of who he is. He utterly deserves condemnation. And nevertheless, Christ has loved him, forgiven him, accepted him, and is, has indeed declared that even though he is a sinner, he is also saved, is also a new creation. Mm-hmm. And that those two things exist side by side in him at the, at, at, at the same time, we, um, that we are, as he said, simultaneously sinners and justified. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sense of, of, of paradox that both of these things, this world and the new creation, exist simultaneously in us. I think that feeds through into everything that that he says um, and, and and everything that he thinks, and he's I mean he's quite insightful about his own flaws. He knows that he is a man who is you know stubborn and foul tempered, um, and you know, when you catch him in the right mood, he can talk quite reflectively about this. And he's aware that despite his flaws, nevertheless. He is, you know, grace, by by God's grace, accepted and 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 made a part of the of, of this new kingdom. Even though he, you know, bag of maggots as he is, you know, this is his his, his own way of talking about himself, deserves this less than anybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the things that you do in the book in describing uh, Luther's understanding of 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 Christ is a. Uh, is that he, is that he really felt Christ's love? Use the word love a lot, and that and that, that that Luther himself was in love with 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 Christ. And and this is not something I had read before. Could you talk a little bit about that? Um, I'm glad you picked that out. There was a point when I I wanted to give this book the subtitle "A Love Story," and I yeah. was persuaded by ex- for, for excellent reasons that this <laughs> would be a good idea, um, but. In some ways, that is, um, you know, at least a part of the story that I'm that I'm trying to tell here. Um, the history of religion has often focused on doctrine and on theology, on the substance of what people believe, and you know, okay, that's important. But what really gives a religion life? What turns it into something that? actually gets people out of bed, gets them out of their houses, makes them change their lives, turns it into something that they're they're willing to die for and willing to kill for, um, isn't a a set of, of of beliefs, you know, a set of propositions that you agree to or don't. It's the emotional purchase that those beliefs have on you. It's what it turns it into something that actually means something in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's there's one sense in which the history of religion has got to be about the history of, of people's emotions, of of why this particular set of beliefs turns into something that really means something to people. And for Luther and the whole variety of Protestant traditions that that stem out from, from that initial protest that he makes, it seems to me that that theme of of love is one of the things that ties that whole movement together. So in the book, I, I talked about this as uh, as a love affair, um, because for for Luther himself in particular, I, I think there is that 
that sort of extraordinary surprised sense that that you get when you know you discover that somebody loves you even though you can't possibly deserve their love mm-hmm. um and you're overwhelmed by by that this that you know the, the sense of, of of what that means um of of admiration and unbelief that this this could this could possibly be the case mm-hmm. and when you look at the way that luther talks about his his experience of of his, his discovery that um, despite all his faults, he's been redeemed. It has that kind of breathless, overwhelmed quality to it. And that's something which I see resurfacing again and again through Protestant history, um, that there's there's something very similar in the in the Puritans in the, the, the later 16th, 17th into the 18th century. You know, Puritanism has this reputation as very kind of dry and unemotional, which I think is just really not true. There's a a, a tremendously you know, rich, deep emotional life there. You may not like it, but it's there. Um, there's something very similar that surfaces in Methodism and Evangelicalism in the in the 18th century, um, and then maybe above all um, in Pentecostalism as it's appeared you know, from the early 20th century. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was going to say you can even see an echo of the centrality of that love, that is the love of God for a fallen man in um, uh, American, they must be Protestant, religious expression. If you watch American sports on TV, you'll inevitably see somebody in the crowd with a sign that says John 3.16. Have you ever seen this before? Every time, you see it every single time, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. And love is is obviously the key. God loves you. You know, this is a kind of a, it's you don't have to do anything for this. He just loves you. <laughs> and, and it really is kind of a central element. I don't know. When I was going to church a lot, it was not something that was, it was I guess it's evangelicals that, that, that have these signs. I have no idea. I really don't. But I, th- I I see what you mean by the centrality of it. Now, on the other there, hand. There are, there are times, I mean, like any love affair that lasts for a long time, um, you know, its moods change. There are times when this sort of Protestant's love affair with God has settled down into a kind of dignified marriage. Uh-huh. Um, and, and, <laughs> then, then, then there are times when it's, you know, it's, 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 it's really kind of rekindled. And there are times when it's become quite sort of estranged. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that, that mood has, has, has slipped away, but the, recurrent theme in Protestant history, at least as I see it, is that 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 sort of love keeps resurfacing and keeps being rediscovered. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So on the one hand, we have uh, Luther, the kind of religious ecstatic in the sense that he loves Christ and encourages other people loving him, says it's the central message of the Gospels, that God loves you, and no matter what you do, God will continue to love you. But on the other hand, uh, he is a great polemicist, and I think at some point you call him like a, a new or a, a, a biblical street fighter. Or I think it's a great phrase: is that he's able to engage in these this sort of combat with other people, and he's of course very well equipped to do so given his background. And those two things, the you know the the, the lovers and the fighters, that might seem like a, a, a paradox, but actually I, I think they absolutely go together. Um, and one of the things that I was I'm arguing throughout the book is that you see those two features of, of Protestant life perpetually um, you know, lined up with each other. And, and I think in some ways they depend on each other. The reason that Protestants have been so combative 
um, and so so willing to to quarrel with each other and with the world around them, um, often in you know in in, in polemic in, in in verbal argument, sometimes in physical violence. Um, the reason that they're willing to fight is because their relationship with God, their religion matters so much to them. Mm-hmm. It's because they're lovers that they become fighters mm-hmm. because they, they want to, to defend their understanding of, you know, their, their experience of, of what it means to, to love and be loved by God. Um, and, and so they've got to, to defend their rights to do that. And also to attack those who are, as they see it, distorting, uh, the true nature of of, of 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 God's love and what it means in in human lives, mm-hmm. um, and and so you know, that that the passion with which they're pursuing their love for God is also the passion with which they pursue their quarrels with people mm-hmm. who see things differently from from them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I begin the book with a, a quote from from Erasmus, Luther's contemporary, and in some ways his inspiration, but who remained part of the part of the Catholic Church, who I think put his finger on exactly this distinction right at the beginning, um, and to some extent that sets the agenda for a lot of the story that I want to tell. Mm-hmm. Well, as you point out in the book, if you go to graduate school as I did, you'll learn that Lutheranism is associated with two doctrines. One is called Solfidianism, or something like this. Uh, that is uh, through faith alone, and the other is, uh, uh, I don't think it has a name, but it's uh, sola scriptura, which means the, the text alone, only the text. Um, it seems to me that, that this latter doctrine had a very important impact on all Protestant history. That is that everybody, I mean, I think that Luther even said, and I, I don't remember, that there was a kind of priesthood of all believers, and really it, it, it was the engagement of this text, the only way we can know God is through this text, and it was the engagement of this text, uh, you know, mediated by the conscience of the person, uh, that actually would determine this this faith that you had to have, that you, you had to make this leap of faith and come to accept God as your uh, as your savior. Can you talk a little bit about this emphasis on the text and the 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 result that it had in? Well, I don't want to uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the way you're taught is is that this is what caused the fissures of Protestantism into many different sects. I, I, that's that's true. The whole sola scriptura thing is 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 fundamental to Protestants' identity. It's also, I think, one of the things that's that's been misunderstood um, because of its relationship with this this other thing, sola fide, you know, faith alone and scriptural. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems very clear to me when you look at the chronology of, of Luther's career and also just at the. The, you know the way that his his arguments unfold. That for him, sola fide, the notion that you're saved simply by putting your faith in in, in Christ, for him that's primary. That's his discovery. He discovers it through reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that discovery is what turns his life upside down and sets him eventually on a collision course um, with with the church establishment. But as he gets into that argument he discovers that the church has a whole set of systems of authority that it wants to bring to bear. And it's looking at what he said and it's saying, no, this is, this is wrong. The church, which has these, these mechanisms for collectively discerning what Christian truth is, has looked at your claims and we've decided that they don't stack up. 
Mm-hmm. And so at that point, Luther has has two options. He can say, well, all right, I admit that as a, you know, exercising the Christian virtue of humility, I'm going to submit my own judgment to the collective wisdom of the church. But he can't do that. He's he's too enraptured by what he's seen. The depth of, of his experience of God means that you know, he, he, for him it would feel like a betrayal to do that. And so he, at, at this you know, key disputation in, in 1519, um, launches himself into this you know, dangerously radical position where he says, no, I reject all of those methods that the church has used collectively to determine truth. The only source of truth that I submit to is the word of God, is the the, you know, the scripture, the Old and New Testament. Um, and I refuse to accept anybody else's interpretation of that as having authority over me. Nobody else can tell me how, you know, what, what, it, what it means, but you know, the Spirit leads me, the Holy Spirit leads me directly um, in, in, my, in my reading of it. So, I mean, this is a, a position that he kind of gets pushed into. But having done it, the really important thing about Scripture alone, I think, is, is the alone part. It's, I mean, the idea of accepting the Bible as authoritative is, I mean, it's not exactly controversial amongst Christians. Catholics <laughs> right. have been doing this for 15 centuries. What Luther's doing isn't, accepting scripture he's rejecting everything outside it and it's that refusal to accept any other power structures that's what make what makes this so radical uh-huh. yeah well, you then find sorry i'm ahead. sorry i was going to say th- this is a point that um I-, I wanted to talk to you about because it seems to me on the one hand he w- does say you're right uh that the only authority which i will recognize is the word of god and the only thing we can know about the word of god comes from the scripture so that's it everything that we're going to do comes from here but then he accepts all kinds of things that don't have anything to do with scripture. There's all kinds of, you know, he wants to create a church and there are all kinds of positions in the church that have nothing to do with the scripture. In other words, he, it seems to me he's kind of inconsistent in this way. I never really thought of it before I read your book, but he's very interested in authority. He wants there to be churches. He wants states to pay for them, uh, you know, and all these other things that have no biblical provenance at all. Do they? Well, um, there are, deep arguments about that, which I don't want to get into. Um, <laughs> I bet there are. <laughs> but, I mean, Luther is, you know, is in some ways intensely pragmatic about, about these kind of things. He, he knows that you've, that you've got to do something, that you've got to organize your life. Um, and he, you know, is, is perfectly willing to accept the structure of the church in many ways as it as it is. He's 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 not a kind of structural revolutionary. He's really not very interested in structures, governance, law, those kinds of issues. This this is a guy who um, had been sent to university to study law by his father um, and left after six weeks to become a monk. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he, he always despises <laughs> lawyers and law. And, and he ended up and he ended up, and he ended up marrying a nun. <laughs> he, 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 he did. He did. Um, yeah, but, but fortunately, she was she was made of tough stuff. She could yeah, handle him. Right. Exactly. Um so I guess one of the things I'm driving at here is, is that, you know, he, he, he quickly says, you know, he says, well, yeah, sure. Everybody gets to interpret the Old and New Testament in the way they want. And they're going to have this, um, 
you know, to borrow a metaphor from a later Protestant group, this, uh, this, this, this light is going to shine in them, and yeah. then they're going to have the leap of faith, and that's going to be it. They're going to be saved. But then yeah. other then people do this, and he condemns them. Yeah, because <laughs> he's like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, 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 you've got to feel sorry for Luther. That, I mean, he, he's, I mean, in some ways, you know, the, the guy's a professor who has an idea. Um, and I mean, professors are having ideas all the time, and it's relatively rare for one to start a revolution. Um, and he's he's working out, in some ways, working out the consequences of his own spiritual realization, the other kind of personal crisis that that, that he's had. Um, and so when he talks about Christian freedom and nothing except the word of God, he knows what he means. Um, and he's talking about a strictly spiritual revolution and one which refuses to accept any authority outside the Bible as absolute, but which still wants to respect and work with the tradition of the church where it's possible to do so. Um, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's not a bomb thrower. But then you find people who are starting to, to pick up his ideas or bits of his ideas and run with them. Um, and I mean, one of the, the, the main points that I wanted to make in the book is that the, the set of radical traditions that come out of the, of the early Reformation and have, I think too often been written out of the story or been seen as kind of marginal to it, a few crazy people on the edge. Um, I actually think they're really important for understanding the nature of the whole Reformation movement, and they become a crucial part of the inheritance for what gets picked up in, in, in later ages. Because you know these people are saying, well, okay, so if we're going to potentially question everything in the light of just Scripture, just the Word of God, um, then what about the traditions of the early church? What about the creeds? Maybe what about infant baptism? Um, what about the Trinity? Um, you, once you start saying nothing except what's in the Bible, then you can unravel an awful lot of what traditional Christianity had, had looked like. And the next stage beyond that, which people are taking, you know, within a couple of years of Luther's initial protest, um, is to say, well, okay, we don't accept any authority outside the Bible, but maybe the Bible itself is is a bit of a problem. Mm -hmm. um, because what if the Spirit is speaking to us directly now? Maybe, okay, so maybe the Spirit spoke through the Bible all those, you know, 1500 years ago. But what he's saying to us now kind of maybe adds to that or possibly even overturns it. We can be taking be taken in a new direction. So you've you've got a series of these of these radical groups which right. don't don't just look to the Bible as an absolute authority, but are willing to move beyond that and say, well, maybe there's authority in um, th th that comes directly from the Holy Spirit that we can move beyond the bare words of Scripture to the the inspiration that the spirit is actually providing us with now not the historical record of of what he did um, as recorded in the bible 1500 years ago but the 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 way in which he's leading our community right now mm -hmm. and so some of these people are actually starting to leave the bible behind and again you can see that tradition of being being willing to to move beyond scripture into pure inspirationalism again running right through the history of protestantism mm -hmm. that's very interesting i I, th I think that uh well i was going to say that uh, infant baptism is just a classic case because i don't think there's anything in the bible that says anything about infant baptism i don't know i haven't looked recently 
But is, am well, I wrong about that? Well, I, I don't want to get too much into what is a, <laughs> a, a very well-developed argument. Um, but just briefly, um, no, all of the baptisms that are explicitly recorded in, in, in the Bible are of adults. There is a, a crucial point where we, we hear about an entire household being baptized, um, and that's that's often taken yeah. to, to imply that there are um, there are children involved. But the the real uh, the real reasons why Luther and Calvin and many of those who become the sort of Protestant establishment want to to hang on to infant baptisms is more kind of theological and structural, because what they want is is what the Catholic Church had had in one sense, which is a universal church, Mm -hmm. a church for the whole of society, a national church, Mm -hmm. one that embraces everybody living in a particular territory. And if you're going to do that, then you've got to have infant baptism as the the means of organizing it, rather than something that people can choose or not choose to join to, to to, to join. when when they become adults, and there are there are theological reasons attached to this as well. And I mean, one of the key arguments that's made there is that baptism in the New Testament is a kind of analog of circumcision in the Old Testament. And of course, babies were circumcised. Um, the idea is that there's a, a new covenant that Christians belong to by um, you know, the, the, the church is a covenanted community. Um, Luther also has a, and, and therefore has to extend to, to everybody, to, to um, adults and infants. And Luther in particular makes an argument that to, to focus on adult baptism is to think about faith as something intellectual, something that you've got to be educated into. And he says that's wrong. This is you know, <laughs> faith is is a, is 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 a response of the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and he cites the example um, from from the Bible of when um, the Virgin Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth um, and when Mary speaks Elizabeth who's is pregnant with John the Baptist um, says that her baby leaps in her womb hearing Mary's voice and Luther says look that shows that even an unborn child is capable <laughs> of saving faith how can you deny baptism mm-hmm. yeah got it I don't know. I'm not as willing to let Luther off the hook as you are, maybe. I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth again, but, uh, you know, the guy just seems to be so full of contradictions. I, I, it, it, I, I, I don't know. Let me say this. Um, and after reading your book, I, I began to have sympathy for the church because they went pretty easy on the guy, didn't they? <laughs> I mean, why didn't they just kill him? I mean, he was obviously a heretic. <laughs> yep. I mean, that, it, it, it should have worked that way. I mean, there are well-developed structures for dealing with this kind of thing. Um, you know, there, there are inquisitorial structures, heresy laws. Um, you know, he, the, the, the guy should have wound up at the stake. Um, it's politics that saves him. Um, he's in you know, a, a newly founded university whose patron is one of the most powerful princes in Germany. Um, and this prince, the, the, you know, Frederick the Elector of Saxony, is in a politically very strong position at the moment that Luther emerges as a, as a public figure. And the, the papacy and the German emperor, you know, both of whom have got a whole lot of problems on their plate and this one awkward theologian in, at a German university is by no means at the top of the list. They do not want to make an issue of it. 
and so they they let it slide. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's, he's he's given this kind of crucial breathing space, but in some ways that's a reflection also of, of, of Luther's achievement. The reason that it's not worth the political trouble to pursue him is because he's instantly, really almost instantly, turned himself into a celebrity. Um, the, the significance of print here, the fact that mm-hmm. you know, the newly invented printing press, you know, it's been around for, for you know, um, 60-odd years by this point, um, is something that Luther discovers and discovers a way to reach out to a mass audience in a way that literally nobody had ever done before. Um, the scale of, of of Luther's achievement, of the, the, the number of books that he writes, that he sells. I mean, many of these kind of short, cheap pamphlets um, that are, are circulated in, in astonishing numbers. He discovers this ability to write really kind of gripping German, um, which which catches the popular imagination in a way that that really doesn't have any precedence. Um, this turns him into a into a celebrity and into a powerful figure, um, but, but, but because of that, which is what makes political cost attached to challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in some ways, this is a tale about new media. Mm-hmm. Um, you know about the way that that he is able to use what he and the early Protestants regarded as this providential instrument um, that God had prepared the way for the Reformation through the invention of printing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I, I think it's inconceivable that the Reformation in anything like the form it happens could have taken place without that ability to reach out beyond the normal environment where theological discussion took place into a wider world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, we Spent a lot of time on Luther, and that's probably just my own personal predilection. But uh, there are a lot of kinds of Protestants we have to get to in the short time that remains. Uh, so, so if Luther was the, uh, to use a bad metaphor, if Luther was the trunk, one of the first branches has to be. I mean, if we don't talk about the little saplings, which were what Luther called, I think you called them. He called them fanatics or something. This is the yeah. radical Reformation. Would be Calvinism. Yeah, I mean, the Luther odd thing, which is Calvinism. almost everybody who disagrees with him a fanatic. Yeah. Well, but. you know, in general, I, and again, I hate to keep coming back to Luther, but it seems to me that he says. Yes, it's perfectly appropriate. In fact, God ordains that you should go and find your way to God in whatever way you like, as long as it's the right way. And I'm telling you what the right way is. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's essentially what he says. I, you know, yeah, <laughs> I, he, he, you know, he, he's he's not quite as 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 permissive as as that suggests. You know, he, as to him, the the truth of what Christianity ought to be is is blindingly obvious. Yeah. He's read this in scripture. Yeah, right. It seems to him that the truth is inescapable and that anybody who doesn't see what he sees uh, is either willfully blind or, or stupid right. or deluded. Yeah, I don't know. It's just um, it's a very, it's very in an age of relativism. It's a very strange thing to kind of think about is that there's just this yeah. right way and that's it. Uh, yeah. But that is and, what he believed. I think that is really yeah, what and, he believed. And, uh, so, know, relativism is something that I, I mean, I think relativism is something that Protestantism has given us as, yes. you know, over the last 500 years, people have have tried to to thrash out that sort of situation and, and, and deal with the consequences of the fact that Hey, once you start doing this, you discover that people really don't agree with right, each other. They don't. It's, well, it's, it's it's a shock. Yeah. They expect it to, to they expect it to work. Well, it is a shock. I mean, as you point out in the book, Luther never wanted two churches. Peter founded one church, and that was it. And yeah. uh, uh, there was no more talk about that. I mean, there was no question. There was only one church. 
that yeah. Christ had one church, and that's mm-hmm. it. Um, and, so, and the one that's headed by the Antichrist in Rome is not. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Never known for understatement, that Martin Luther. No. Um, so uh, Calvinism. Calvinism. I don't know. Can you talk to us about the origins of Calvinism, which, as you say in the book, should be called Zwingliism or something? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, the, the two get put alongside each other as these kind of two key forms of early Protestantism. Um, and that's that's partly because the outcome of some of the early religious wars produces that, you know, gives them a kind of equivalent legal status. And so they, they get treated as, as, as kind of two different flavors of it. Actually, they're really, really different from each other. And they're different kinds of thing as well as, 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 as different things. I mean, Lutheranism, as it eventually emerges and becomes systematized um, is very much built around Luther's own insights. He dominates that, that, that movement and continues to, to, to down to the present. Um, the movement that we call Calvinism or sometimes reformed Protestantism reformed with a capital R um, or, or, you know, you could, you could trace it back to, to Hildrich Zwingli in Zurich as, as really the first mover of that, of, of that movement is much more of a collective enterprise. Um, it's a, a group of, 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 of theologians and scholars, many of them in Switzerland and southern Germany, um, who are drawing on the, the insights of the Renaissance humanists and also on, on, on what Luther's doing. And they construct something which is, is much more interested in the Christian community as a whole. Luther's very individualistic. It's about him and God. And, you know, there may be some other people, but it's it's fundamentally about that kind of you know, simple two-sided relationship. The the Reformed are, are much more interested in the Christian community as a whole. And so, you know, while Luther himself, you know, is not a lawyer and despises law, um, John Calvin, the, the Frenchman who becomes... He's a second generation leader, but he becomes the sort of dominant figure of, of, of the reform movement. And he's also the one who stops it splitting up when it really looks like it might. Um, Calvin's a lawyer by training um, and he, he, he teaches himself theology, but his, his, his training is in, in, in law. And he's determined to build structures that will allow this this church to to survive and to hold together and so there are theological differences between them you know luther like i said is is in love with with paradox and and, and wants to to encounter god um in this, this this way that almost sort of transcends rationality whereas the calvinists are much more kind of scholarly and straight laced about about these sorts of things and they think that that luther has kind of tied himself in theological knots um unnecessarily in places um and so that there are kind of theological litmus tests that you can use about the nature of what's happening in the bread and wine at communion um but i think it's this this difference between the individualism of of of, of lutheranism and the 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 more communal and collective structures that the Calvinists have that's that's significant because that makes Calvinism much more political. Luther you know, knows that he wants an established church. He's willing to work with the princes, you know, with whoever happens to be in power and to pragmatically construct whatever he needs to in order to make that work. Calvin has a very clear vision of how he thinks a church has to be structured 
and he's also very clear that a church should be independent of and in some cases opposed to state control. The whole notion of the, the sort of fairly rigid separation of church from state um, is is one that Calvin and the Calvinists end up pushing most most radically. And that's why they become you know, really at the heart of the the religious wars of the period, because it's Calvinists who are willing to organize in the face of hostile rulers. I mean, Luther, who is you know, wonderfully impractical when he says, if your king won't tolerate you, then then simply pray. Mm-hmm. Um, Calvin <laughs> will pray, but he also organizes. Yeah, the, the Calvinists get beat up a lot uh, in the 16th and uh, late 16th and the 17th century, and it proves to be a very popular uh, religion. And I never really quite understood how it made its way uh, around Europe the way that it did. So Lutheranism spreads pretty much through um, individual princes and kings and rulers deciding to adopt it and enforce it in their territory. So when Lutheranism is adopted, it's usually adopted top down. Calvinism tends to spread bottom up. It's building these networks um, you know, of, of exiles, people traveling around from from you know, university and, and community to, um, uh, to to others across the continent. And so, where Lutheranism ends up with a sort of block of territory in northern Germany and Scandinavia, it's kind of you know, a ni- mm-hmm. nicely organized area. Calvinism starts breaking out like a rash all over the map. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are Calvinists in, in in Switzerland, in the Netherlands, Calvinist minorities scattered through France. There, there are Calvinists in Poland and Hungary, um, and there are, there are Calvinists in, in Britain, in Scotland, and, and, and in England, two separate kingdoms then mm-hmm. um, with very different religious experiences. Um, and it seems to spread chiefly through through those sorts of informal networks and often in opposition to, to, to whoever happens to be in power. And like you say, Calvinism nowadays has this reputation for being kind of austere and mm-hmm. unwelcoming. And you might be thinking, you know, who would want to convert to, <laughs> to, to, to something like this? You said it, I did. Um, <laughs> but it... I mean, that's a really important part of its history. And and, by the time you get into the 18th, 19th century, you know, the extent to which this is sort of something that people are deeply alienated from is is, is really important. But in this in this earlier period, the the Calvinists have got some steel to them Um, in the face, especially of persecution. The Calvinists have got resources to offer you. Partly they've they've got the the organization. Um, they've got the structures to allow them to stand up against a hostile state and and uh, you know, to, to to organize themselves and defend themselves. But they've also got theological resources, and you know the doctrine of predestination is what they're now maybe most famous for. Mm-hmm. The idea that before you were born, before the creation of the world, God decided whether you were going to be saved or damned, whether you're going to heaven or hell, and there's nothing you can do about it. And that's well, let's just say that's a doctrine that people have had some problems with down the years. Um, and nowadays you think that is such an unappealing way of thinking. It appears to be this sort of complete denial of free will and of power over your own life. But there's a lot of evidence that at the height of persecution, that was something that that, that people found intensely comforting, mm-hmm. a sense that if you are being persecuted for your faith, then, well, first of all, that that looks like you're probably one of the ones whom God's chosen. And that means that it's not up to you to stand firm. 
but that when the torturer comes, you're going to be saved. It doesn't matter. Um, you, know, you, you, you don't need to try and kind of find your own strength to, to hold on to your faith when, you, when you're put under pressure to, to recant it. You're one of the saved. God will see you through this because it's not your power but his mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's going to bring you through. And so that there is this kind of tremendous and, again, kind of raptured, passionate focus on God's power, on God's sovereignty. Um, that Calvinism seems to be to be magnifying God's power um, to to the greatest extent possible, and I think that's a that's a huge part of its appeal. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about. Uh, I have so much more I want to talk about. Let's talk a little bit about Protestantism in um, in England. And I have to say that as a Lutheran, I always uh, uh, I was always a little bit suspicious about Anglicanism. I didn't really understand what it was. It looked awfully like Catholicism to me. Uh, and, and it seems that that was something that a lot of English people thought as well. Can you talk a little bit about the way Protestantism kind of came and, and especially the, the origins of this thing, Anglicanism, which I say sure. confuses me. Go ahead. Well, I should start by saying that I'm a, I'm a licensed minister in the, in the Church of England, um, and so I've got a dog in this fight myself. So <laughs> you know, people may want to take what I'm, 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 I'm saying here with a pinch of salt. But I, I think the bit that's uncontroversial is that – in the years after the Reformation, when Protestantism gets established in, in England, okay, there's the whole business with Henry VIII and the Pope. Let's leave that to one side because Henry VIII is not a Protestant by any means. He's his own thing. Um, but once you, once you get the, the more kind of classic English Reformation going under Queen Elizabeth, then what's established in England is basically a form of Calvinism. Um, doctrinally, these guys are... You know, absolutely signed up to the to, you know, to, to, to the Calvinist consensus. Um, in they never adopt the the Calvinist structure for the church because the Queen and her successors want to make sure that they retain full political control of the English Church. Um, and, and the Queen also has because of that full political control, she's able to impose some of her own preferences, which is that. She, Queen Elizabeth I, you know, likes some bits of traditional um, ceremonial. She likes church music. Um, she hangs on to cathedrals as you know <laughs> places which which really have no purpose in a Protestant world, um, and there's no rationale for it. But the Queen says so, and you know nobody's going to argue. And and so you get an, an English church appearing, which is is basically a Protestant Calvinist church, but with these kind of odd relics of the old ways still hanging around it. And the tension over over that, because there are plenty of English Protestants who think that this is a, a half-finished Reformation and they've, they've, they've got to you know, complete the job. These are the people who become known as Puritans. Um, some of them you know, are eventually in despair at their repeated failure to do this, um, decide to, to cross the water and set up shop in New England. Um, but... Many of them also get caught up in um, the, the, the Civil War, which breaks out in England in the 1640s, which is about a whole load of things, a lot of which come down to the profound inadequacy of King Charles I as a ruler. Um, but 
the religious conflict is 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 right at the heart of it and that the that moment of conflict is a is a crucial point in protestantism's history i i devote a whole chapter to it um because i think that war and what comes out of it is one of the most kind of fertile creative moments for 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 sects for you know, all kinds of different denominational identities the baptists as we know them come out of that um you know the quakers and you know, a whole series of other groups too um and as I would see it, Anglicanism is also one of the sects that emerges out of that movement. Because when when the radical side win the Civil War um, and are able finally to push through this complete reformation to impose something close to a Presbyterian, a full-on Calvinist settlement in England, you then find a substantial minority, maybe even a majority of the English population who aren't happy with this, who want to hang on to that half-reformed church that they've inherited from the Queen, and who want to start doubling down on some of this ceremonial stuff mm-hmm. and are, you know, are, are are coming up with new sets of possibilities and borrowing things from the, from the Catholic tradition. And because their religion is now banned, nobody's micromanaging it anymore. And it's possible in local parishes where nobody can see what you're doing um, for them to start experimenting with more kind of daringly traditional ways of, 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 of being this sort of church. And so when the English Republic collapses after 11 years and the, the monarchy is restored, these people then come out of hiding and they inherit the restored Church of England that King Charles II puts into place. Um, all the the, the 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 radicals, the Calvinists, now tend to be to be driven out. You know, thousands of people, um, thousands of ministers are thrown out of the Church of England, um, and instead of having a a, you know, a truly national church, now you have this really a new entity, although it still calls itself the Church of England, which is dominated by these kind of daringly traditional sets of ideas, which are are, are trying to restore large parts of, 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 of the ceremonial legacy which had been thrown over at, at the Reformation. They still very much want to identify as Protestants and certainly the sense of, of hatred for Catholicism, for popery as they call it, um, is, is a fundamental part of English identity you know, deep into the 19th century and, and, and beyond. But they create this form of, of Protestantism, this distinctively English thing called Anglicanism, which doesn't really have any parallels elsewhere in the Protestant world um, and increasingly becomes cut off from the rest of the Protestant world. Mm-hmm. And it's now spread around the, spread around the planet. You know, we have this, this oh, yeah. kind of global Anglican communion and the Episcopal Church in the United States, yeah. which is, is, is very much a, a part of that tradition. It still seems to me that that's part of the Protestant world, although a lot of Anglicans don't like having the P word used about them. <laughs> um, but, yeah. but, but now I'm starting oh, to get into to, yeah. to fights within my own church, which maybe let's not do that today. I, I want to jump forward a little bit and, and um, ask some, uh, I don't know if they're controversial questions, maybe they're just arise out of my own confusion. Um, but I, I think readers probably want to know this and people that know. Are Mormons Protestants? <laughs> I, I don't think so. Um, 
I mean, as as you'll have gathered, I'm pretty inclusive. Yeah, about, you are. You're very inclusive about I, about, very, about yeah. accounts in, yeah. in in this. And you know, I I I think that you know groups like you know Quakers or or Seventh Day Adventists or you know a range of of others, I think, have got to be seen as part of the extended Protestant mm-hmm. family. I mean, like most families, this is a family where there are plenty of people who don't like to each don't like each other yeah. and aren't willing to speak to each other. Right. But that doesn't mean they're not a family. Um, Mormonism comes out of a Protestant milieu. You know, I've got, I've, I have a section about it in the book. Yeah, you do. Yeah, um, but yeah. it, it seems to me that Mormonism has developed such radical differences from a, a historic Christianity and from the context that it's come out of that it makes more sense to talk about it as, as a new religion, yeah. as something distinct in its own right. I think it is at least as different from historic Christianity as Christianity is from Judaism. Yeah. Um, and in, in particular, I think what, what sets it apart from all the, 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 the kind of 57 varieties of Protestantism that, that, that I've been dealing with is the, the role that it gives to, to the church. Um, and to the prophetic authority of, of, of the church and of the priesthood, that sense of having a, a consecrated structure which serves as an intermediary between the believer and God um, is, I mean, that's, that's more like Catholicism than it's mm-hmm. like Protestantism. Mm-hmm. And it's, for me, that direct contact without intermediaries, without any kind of chain of command um, between the individual believer and God is what unites the different forms of Protestantism. And that's something which, you know, alongside all the other differences that Mormonism has, that's something that it's moved away from. And so, I mean, you know, fascinating movement, but I think it's a different story. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm very interested in these questions. I'm not sure they're very productive, but I'm just very interested in them, these boundary setting sort of things. So let me continue. Jehovah's Witnesses, are they really Protestants? Well, I mean, again, you can have that argument, but I think they they absolutely come out of that. that They do. Yeah, they do. Um, I mean, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists are kind of weird – um, weird sister churches. I mean, they, they are very, very different from one another. Yep. Um, you know, the Seventh-day Adventists are kind of open and, I mean, now really in many ways fairly kind of orthodox conservative Protestant group with with, with some mm-hmm. you know, particular um, characteristics of, of their own. You know, they, they've, they've got universities. They're um, at, at this kind of open discursive group. The, the Jehovah's Witnesses are, you know, are, are remarkably closed, tight community with with a, a very centralized autocratic governing yes, structure they are. Yeah. Um, but both of them come out of of this moment of apocalypticism um, in the United States in the 1830s 1840s um, the the Millerite movement which predicted the end of the world for 1844 um, and there's this kind of tremendous wave of excitement and then when it didn't happen, different groups responding to it in different ways. For the Seventh-day Adventists, they they see um, what happened in 1844 as a, as a spiritual event, that, um, that, that Christ's judgment of the world began at that point, and so they're still expecting the end imminently, but it's it's about kind of preparing and consecrating themselves in the world um, you know, in, in, in the meantime. 
the the Jehovah's Witnesses in, go down the 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 route instead of of making other calculations of saying okay so it wasn't 1844 so when's it going to be and initially it's 1914 and of course the world doesn't end in 1914 either so you might have thought that the whole movement was going to collapse then but while the world doesn't actually end in 1914 you know it has a fair go at it <laughs> you know, the, 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 the outbreak of the First World War looks like a sufficiently yeah. you know apocalyptic event that it's possible for for the witnesses to say okay that's that's the beginning of the end that shows that the, the, the prophecy was correct and the, you know the, 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 the world really is 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 on its way to to, to destruction. Um, and although the movement has its has its ups and downs, and has in the last twenty years kind of quietly abandoned and um, you know a business of of date setting, um, which I mean, it had been moving away from that for a long time. Uh, it's it's still working within that kind of apocalyptic mm-hmm. framework. Mm-hmm. So although structurally it's it's one of the most autocratic. Of of any of the, the the churches and denominations that have that have come out of Protestantism, um, in terms of its of its spirituality and of the the, the kind of of religious experience um, that it's engendering, it seems to me very much part of that that wider family. It's also incidentally been the most persecuted Christian movement of yes. any kind no in, question. In, in in modern times. Um, I mean the the. The persecution that the the witnesses had in in Nazi Germany is is particularly well known. When they're virtually the only Christian group of any sort who who made a serious and concerted attempt to stand up to to, to, to Nazi power, mm-hmm. they they just in in 1937 they managed to print and distribute 300,000 distribute in one day 300,000 copies of a pamphlet that they've had printed denouncing Hitler as the apocalyptic beast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which which takes a certain amount of courage. No, it takes a lot of courage. And even today, I was listening to the news, and the uh, Russian authorities uh, were thinking about putting all the Jehovah's Witnesses on some sort of, uh, I, I don't know what sort of list it is, but it's a list of bad religions or something like yeah. this. Um, so, yeah. And that's sort of typical. They've, they've not been popular with states, really, anywhere. I mean, and you know, in the United States, during the Second World War, they are widely treated as and suspected as Nazi sympathizers mm-hmm. because pacifism. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the, the, the irony of that is particularly. Yeah, you're right. That boy, oh boy. By mentioning these groups, I'm not saying they're not Christian. Of course, they're Christian. I'm just wondering about what it is to be a Protestant. And, and let me ask you this kind of most controversially. I bet you get this question occasionally. Does Protestant mean anything but not Catholic? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, it really does. I mean, the simple definition is a genealogical one, that all of these these groups can be traced back in some way to, to Luther's revolt. I mean, that, that I think the image I use in the book is that this is a, is, is a tree with lots of tangled branches, yeah, but yeah. one trunk. Um, and so, I mean, you, you can see that there are you know there are christian groups elsewhere in the world with completely different genealogies which are are as vehemently anti-catholic as any protestant might wish to be but you know you 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 can't call russian orthodox protestant it's the right. completely different set of traditions there um so there's that genealogical thing but to to come back to where we we started i also think there's that direct relationship between the, the the believer and god that the consequence of that notion of justification by faith alone that simply by 
you as an individual believer placing your sole trust in Christ, that that is the route to salvation. Different Protestant groups have dealt with that in very different ways. Um, the doctrines that they framed that kind of insight in have varied a lot. Like I say, that that kind of fundamental love affair, the, 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 the spirituality, the emotional quality, which underpins that, is something which I think has surfaced across a whole range of these groups. And, and that's why I, I think Protestantism is, is a thing um, and why it's possible, I hope, with a degree of coherence, to write a single book which tries to, to pull all these, these different elements together into what I think is one story. I mean, I think it is. The genealogical approach works very well here because you can trace the origin of one of these branches back to a previous branch and then back to the roots. That's that's very clear from your book, and you do an excellent job of that. I guess my uh, question is more a modernist or, I guess, presidentist uh, in, in nature, and that is that you know a lot of the people I know who profess to be Protestants are a little bit unsure about the divinity of Christ or mm-hmm. divinity in general. And, yeah. and I just wonder exactly how we should understand this as historians or or you have a more, you know, again, or as people who, you know, attend the Lutheran church or the Anglican church or whatever. What Where do these people fit? I mean, that, the, the trouble with this is that um, there's there's a route down here which could lead me into kind of declaring that the entire world are Protestants uh, <laughs> because there are certainly strains of skepticism and atheism which which come out of a Protestant milieu and have still got some of that kind of ethic around them. Um, I mean, I, I, I forget who it was um, when. Um, being introduced to an atheist um, said, well, you know, but the key thing is, are you a Catholic atheist or a Protestant atheist? <laughs> um, and, and I mean, that's, that's certainly the case that we've got that, that, that sort of, 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 of ethos that, that still feeds through into people who've left any kind of, of, of meaningful religious identity behind. Um, but as for, you know, the, 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 the sort of person you're talking about who would still kind of identify as, as a Protestant or with one of the Protestant denominations, but would do so with kind of doubt and uncertainty. I think that really is a, a, a deeply authentic way. Yeah, of, I, agree, I agree with you about that. And I've had arguments um, with people about this. Yes. Uh, that That's, I mean, partly because, I mean, as, as a historian, I want to say you can trace that way back into the tradition. You can find people wrestling with with the notion of, of atheism. Atheism, which is a word which is coined in the 16th century. Mm, I didn't know. Um, you know, that, that's... You know, that, that, how to deal with with doubt. You know, once you've made the individual conscience sovereign, then you're kind of saying, well, you know, you you can't simply farm out your faith to the authority of the church. You've right. got to wrestle with these these issues yourself. Right. So, right. and that that's that's a recurrent thing. Um, I think one of the the big questions about the future of of Protestantism globally at, at present is how those sorts of battles with with doubt and uncertainty are are going to be resolved what i can say to that as as a historian is it's been going on for a long time um that you know as as early as the the late 18th century you've you've got protestants saying well sort of doubt and secularism are the main challenge that, that that we need to confront and wrestling with it in some i think really creative ways um 
sometimes it's worked pretty well, sometimes not so much. Um, but a lot of the story of Protestantism over the last 200 years, at least, is of how that, that sort of wrestling has, has, has played out. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree with you completely. And I think that one of the most authentic and original Protestant experiences is this moment of, 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 of doubt, really. I mean, Luther felt this himself. He, he wasn't sure, and, and it, drove, it drove him up the wall. And most of us, you know, we can go about our days without it because we live in a largely secular environment. But for him, it was really a crisis, and, and he had to find a way to kind of solve it in some way. And he did, you know, through Sulfidianism or whatever you want to call it. But, but this notion that you just don't know, but you have to have faith. I mean, this is the, this is the essential Protestant thing to say, is that I, I have faith in God. I have faith that there is a God. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is really what, what, what it's about, I think, for, for many, many Protestants. I have a friend who's uh, uh, he's Jewish, and he, he likes to say that um, many of the Protestants that he know, knows are atheists, and so they're, in fact, Jews. <laughs> <laughs> they don't believe in the divinity of Christ. So, well, they're really Jewish. You know, they're crypto-Jews. They don't even know it. So I try to tell him that really isn't the case. But. Well, I mean, Protestantism and Judaism have a kind of – long and you know sometimes very close sometimes well let's just say kind of troubled relationship yeah no it's absolutely it's absolutely true but that's yeah, that's maybe a different story yeah no that's absolutely it's a different story well we've taken a, a ton of your time i could talk for another hour about this easily with you i'd love to hear more stories and if other people want them what i encourage them to do is go out and buy this book it's called protestants the faith that made the modern world and we didn't even get to talk about the Whig interpretation of history I could. That's, that was, I, really oh, no, that's wanted, yeah, I really wanted to go there too. So you can see that uh, th this book piqued my interest, and I thought it was absolutely fascinating and really well written, very funny, and, and enlightening for anybody who's interested in these issues, believer or not. And uh, I really encourage everyone to go read the book. Alec, let me thank you for being on New Books in History. Marshall, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. Take care now. Bye bye. <laughs>